Scott Hansen. Canvas, art and ideas on FBI Radio. Good Sunday morning to you. It's just past 11am, which means you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Sabella D'Souza, and I'm your backseat host for today. I'm really excited for today's episode. This is the first instalment in hopefully a series of special episodes where we ask artists, curators and writers around Sydney to join us in studio and chat about pressing issues in the arts. Curating and moderating today's episode is Nanette Orley. Nanette is a Sydney-based curator whose methods hope to highlight the benefits of migration and intercultural exchanges by creating platforms for diverse voices. Nanette, who have you invited into the studio today? Today we have Sebastian Henry-Jones. He's a curator who cultivates radical strategies of care and empathy that transcend cultural and social differences. He recently actually came on to Canvas um, to interview about his show at First Draft in February. We'll also be joined by Talia Smith, whose curatorial practices um, focus on memory and disc slash location. Uh, She places much needed emphasis on curating emerging contemporary Pacific heritage practices. Before we hear from them, let's go to our first track for the day, picked by you, Nanette. This is from 23-year-old vocalist and violinist Sudan Archives with their track, Not For Sale. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. You just heard Non From Sale from Sudan Archives. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Nanette Orley. We'd like to begin our interview by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land upon which we are broadcasting from, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. As part of today's show, we will be using US-centric terms like person of colour to describe our peers, but we must do this whilst also acknowledging Australia's own violent colonial history. As migrant settlers, we benefit from the continued occupation and systemic oppression of this land and its First Nations people. Today's discussion recognises that it is a privilege to share this space, create and work upon Aboriginal land, sovereignty never ceded. I'm joined in the studio right now by Talia Smith and Sebastian Henry-Jones. Today we'll be discussing the need as people of colour to move away from themes solely focused on marginalisation or diaspora within our practices. It's starting to become one note and in abundance with very minimal critique. We will be talking today about the issues institutions are still facing when it comes to diversity and the lack of curatorial care that comes with working with people of colour. Diversity, inclusivity, equality, these are all terms we are seeing being thrown around in institutions today. Look at any art institution's website mission statement around programming and hiring inclusively. Yet, we are still lacking permanent changes to collections, exhibitions, public programming and staffing within these spaces. I think it's important to emphasise how intersectional diversity is, and this is why I've invited both Talia and Seb today. Um, Through their practices, they aim to present works by artists of colour on an equal platform rather than as other, which realistically is what themes of marginalisation tend to do is continue to other ourselves rather than present ourselves as equal and strong. On that note, Talia, you picked our next track 
This is Tomboy by Princess Nokia. I'm Nanette Orley and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. That was all-time banger from Bourgeois Queen, Princess Nokia, with her hit track Tomboy, picked by curator Talia Smith. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. This episode is hosted by Nanette Orley in conversation with Talia Smith and Sebastian Henry-Jones. Talia and Seb, both of you have curated shows with people of colour and white artists before. In terms of talking about accurate representations of diversity here how interse- and how intersectional that is, uh, could you shed some light onto this curatorial decision? Hey, um, I suppose I'll begin by saying that like, by creating an environment in which you're um, allowing people to present some kind of self-expression, you have a responsibility to... Um, present a factual representation of the world around you and there's a like very strong connection between the art world and the the broader social world so with that as a context I suppose it's really reductive to an artist's practice and to who they are to um, think to to only put artists of color with other artists of color Um, and apart from that it's just it's like more than just brown people's labor to fight racism and oppression Mm -hmm. wherever it happens yeah, I agree. And I think also um, it's about equalising the playing field as well. Like, you know, white voices dominate our galleries so much and are kind of considered contemporary art more often than not. And so when you have a show that is predominantly or just all um, diverse voices, people look at it as a diverse show, like a show about mm. brown people or people from Southeast Asia or something like that when really it's actually contemporary art also. So I hate, I really don't like that um, differentiation that people try to put between that. So that's why I like to include both voices. And I think there's always interesting conversations you can have between everyone, like you're saying, Seb, you know, it's not just, I don't know. Yeah. And I think also when we are part of the diaspora, most of us, we can have an opinion on any topic. It doesn't have to be on migration or identity or it's we have a diasporic view on everything. So I don't see why we should be excluded from those conversations, which is why I try to include both when I am curating them. I think that's a good point. And I think we should also just keep in mind that if we are going to instigate any change, it has to be all together. And I think if we keep providing platforms for one or the other, we're never going to succeed in that. Yeah, totally. What are your... Can I ask both of you? Mm-hmm. It's Sabella here, by the way, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Just dropping in. Can I ask maybe a bit about your uh, curatorial practices in the past, who, who you've curated in your shows? Yeah, for sure. I guess I'll start. Um, the yes, last Seb. Show I, yeah, <laughs> Seb speaking. <laughs> the last show I did at First Draft involved artists of colour and non-artists of colour. Um, the same with the show I did last year at Tributary Projects in Canberra. Uh, I suppose my methodology is looking not only at the finished um, presentation of art in the gallery, but thinking of an exhibition as a format that, you know, it's integral to any um, process that you foster relationships, not between only yourself and the artist, but between the artists themselves, artists and audiences. So, you know, there's so much potential there for, like, conversations to occur. You don't want, yeah, you want an equal conversation, essentially. And you, Talia? 
Um, I think uh, last year I did a show at Art Bank um, called In a World of Wounds, and because that used the collection at Art Bank, um, which steers towards a Eurocentric voice, um, I <laughs> I had to kind of then put in a lot of people of colour into that because, again, what I was saying before, that the issue that I was sort of exploring within a world of wounds was uh, our impact on the land and the landscape and each other. And that's just, you know, I think everybody has an opinion about that. So, again, having people of colour and non-people of colour. But I am curating two shows in May, one at Artspace Ideas Platform and one at Cement Fondue. And both of them actually only have people of colour in them. And one is in particular about contemporary um, Pacific heritage artists who use photography and video. So I would like to create a publication um, adding to the discourse for Pacific artists and writing, because I don't think there's a lot um, Mm. on that, especially if someone of that heritage, who is also an artist who uses photography and video. So I think that's really important. And then my next project at Cement Fondue are all, again, Pacific Heritage artists, but I'm not really uh, saying that in the sort of spiel about the show because I don't think that that's the important part of the show. The important part of the show is uh, presenting their contemporary experience of being who they are and living where they are, which is either Australia or New Zealand. And I think that I think that comes up in a lot of autonomous shows. Um, we'll be hearing from the white uh, a, a segment of the white pube a little later on in the um, show. But the first show that I was ever um, curated into was Zayn Malak's Zinzabad. Yes, that is named after the One Direction star or ex One Direction star <laughs> Zayn. I love you. So um, beautiful, <laughs> so pretty. Um, but that show was an all. Uh, South Asian video artist show um, and it, it's kind of trying to find this balance between you know we're all in the same show together because we're South Asian we do video mm-hmm. art but also the idea of okay you know that now that's now a moot point like mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. let's now look at these different experiences because a lot of them ended up looking at how technology like Sombart who's a um, artist based in New York just out of but originally from India did a lot of work with like selfie sticks and getting mm. um like snakes and elephants and um, monkeys to hold selfie sticks in these like weird little videos <laughs> but it was this weird like you know the classic buzzword of where art and technology <laughs> um, sounds sexy yes <laughs> super sexy um, but yeah it is I think as curators it's trying to find a balance between um, wanting to provide a safe space for your artists to show work so that their work is like not just about their brownness or about mm. their identity but then also knowing when to also make it about that as well yeah, and, totally. and when you know maybe their identity isn't being acknowledged in yeah. an art space so I think that's really interesting yeah and I think also uh as a person of color who makes art my identity is inherent in everything I do like you know my experience of being a Pacific Heritage mixed race person is in everything I do again whether it's curatorial or art making and so I think uh it's just like a moot point again it's like duh of course it is like I can't help it I have a rich history of ancestors that have come before me that have shared stories and traditions and sure I don't speak the language or know um, all of these kinds of cultural traditions but me and my family have made our own and that's still the part uh, part of the experience of being a person of colour mm. and it's just always going to be in what I do. 
Hmm. And Annette, what's your curatorial history? Like, what's your, how have you curated or approached curating people into your shows? Yeah, I'm not going to say that I haven't done shows that responded to diaspora like we all have. Yes. Um, but I think you just have to constantly think forward. And I think I definitely got to a point where I realised I don't, this isn't going to solve anything. Like, this isn't going to solve any of the problems that we keep discussing. Like, how are we going to counteract that? And I've just noticed that there has been more themes around, yeah, marginalisation, all these negative connotations associated with being a person of colour. And it just doesn't present well and not for ourselves, like mentally or physically. Like, it's just, I think if we have to, we just have to be more positive in the way that we present ourselves. And, and it becomes a term that... Enc- it, it becomes yeah. the only term that is used to describe us mm. as artists. Mm, it exactly. Becomes, it becomes a catch-all term that appears in our bios and our, like, you know, our, byline, our bylines. We, <laughs> I don't have a byline. I'm not a writer. But yeah. if I did, marginalised yeah. would potentially go there. 100%. <laughs> and I'm not saying that we're not, but I just think if we continue to label ourselves as that, mm. nothing's going to change. So it's kind of like looking at the language that we yes, use. Yes, language is a big one. And how we can, um, I guess, it should change with the times as well and, and, you know, what is happening now and how what words can we use to keep us going forward, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go to another song. Uh, this one is picked by Seb. This is In My Pocket by Dora and Dolly. You're listening to Canvas, brought to you by FBI Radio 94.5. I did just in my pocket. Taken from the album Family Ties, that was Young Thug's sisters Dora and Dolly with their track In My Pocket. I'm your guest presenter Nanette Orley and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now, I'm chatting to curators Talia Smith and Seb Henry-Jones about curatorial care in public programming. By curatorial care, I am specifically talking about caring for your artist, the audience and the program. Public programs are front-facing and it can be a daunting experience for artists having to lead a discussion or workshop, for example. As curators, it is definitely our responsibility to make sure that the artist is looked after during the entire program. If working with POC practitioners, it's our responsibility to make sure that their culture isn't being dumbed down or being shared with audiences whose engagement will literally go no further than to the end of the public program. We are going to play a snippet from a recent White Pube essay, The Problem with Diaspora Art, which reinforces this sentiment, but also ends on a rather interesting point. Priya from Patchwork Archivists said of this, so many of these things operate within the level of public programme. It's all so public facing, and that's the extent of their politicality. But then you look at the staff and they're so, so white. It's such a disconnect between who's actually making the bulk of the rest of the programme and who's pushed to face the public. Of course, the longevity of exhibitions programme is only ever extended to POC makers of a certain level, but there is no attempt at an in-between. So I find this quote really interesting because I think it definitely locates itself within conversations that we've had here before. Um, I really like this last point about no in-between spaces between these emerging um, artists of colour and the ones that are already got heaps of institutional Clout. Clout. That's a good <laughs> word. Um, so I am interested in that space specifically within my practices and supporting artists, emerging artists especially, um, in order to provide platforms for them and connect them with like-minded peers. So I think in terms of public programming as well, um, I think there is a tendency to almost place sort of pedestrian views on public programming when it comes mm. to people of colour. Um, what do you guys reckon? Do you reckon we can counteract this or how do you guys also think about public programming as curators? 
Um, I work as a public programmer yes. <laughs> at a gallery in Western Sydney. And, you know, I do totally agree with that. It is it's actually really hard to also create a very good, genuine public program. It, and it doesn't just come down to uh, the artists that you're working with or your ideas. It also comes down to the community, community that you're working in. So you kind of, you have to be really aware of also that community that you're working in. And I think a really great example is actually the public program that Nanette Orley ran at uh, <laughs> the gallery I work at. Um, earlier in the year, Nanette had curated a show, um, Though Flowers Fall, I Have Never Forgotten You. Yes. Remember Got anyone. that. Um, what gallery do you work at? Uh, yeah, Peacock <laughs> Gallery. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> so good at promoting myself. Um, Peacock Gallery in Auburn. And Nanette curated a group show there and on the final weekend or yeah well second last weekend second last weekend um they had a sort of workshop afternoon where all of the artists involved and there were four of them mm-hmm. um all came and shared an element of their practice with people so everyone got to experience um each sort of part so there was like drawing yeah. watercolor casting. you know casting all of that sort of stuff and then we ended the day with um eating aljana which <laughs> is what you should always do when you're in uh, Western, Western Sydney. Sydney. Um, it's delicious. <laughs> Plug there, Aljana. <laughs> Sponsor me. Chicken. chicken. Wow, <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, chicken and garlic dip. Yes, um, pickles. pickles. You've sold me. Yeah. You've sold me. Exactly. <laughs> just need to say chicken. Um, <laughs> and there was something really, I think, with the program that you did, it was really beautiful seeing the interactions between the community and the artists and I think you'd created a public program that was highlighting what the artists did and supporting them but also at a level that the local community which do come from but most of them are English as a second language our sort of local community that come to the um, gallery so then also making it in a way that wasn't I think kind of going to make anyone uncomfortable if that sort of makes sense like it was really like we were sitting on the floor we were just chatting we we're eating chicken with our hands you know like it was mm. really like I mean that sounds really dumb saying we were eating with our hands <laughs> <laughs> I just realised how snobby that sounded anyway you get what I'm trying to say I know I was like far out but yeah it was this like really no feels approach over time as well I felt like all the artists were really supported, not only in the exhibition, but the public programs as a way of um, like keeping them present in the minds mm. of an audience and keeping an audience engaged. Which I so. think was particularly, was going to be the most difficult part of having a show yeah, not in central sure. Sydney. So having that engagement, we were there three out of the four weeks mm. and that was mm. really great. And that was the best engagement I've ever had with a gallery before as well. Yeah, I think it's more than just making space for people, it's making space over time. So you invite the same person back again and that's yep. how you actually create a community or yeah. create an audience. It's building an ongoing relationship yeah. with the artist in between the curator and that being not just, you know, a kind of um, transactional thing, mm-hmm. but developing something in which you are both supporting each other and developing your practices yeah. In together. And, like, mm. obviously, you know, you might not... If you're two parallel lines, you might meet every now and again, but you are still working in tangent and in parallel to one another. And I think that's really important. I guess, Nanette, we were kind of speaking about this idea of, as well, I'm not a curator, I'm an artist, but we were talking about this kind of idea that, of course, would happen between a curator and artist, (laughs) but the idea of approaching artists and how you approach artists in terms of curating, like, do you ask people to make new work or do you look at work that they've done before or do you Mm. kind of speak to them about, you know, 
and how do you guide them through that process? It's like, do your research, Mm. like, straight up. Like, I don't... Yeah, I had a friend recently tell me that um, a curator basically reached out over email and it just looked like a really copy-cut, you know, email. There was no, like, hi, I've seen your work here or I've come across your work here or I really believe in your practice. There was none of that. And I was just like, I actually just felt like vomiting because I was like, that's awful. And that's a very common thing for Mm. artists. It's a very common thing for me and I know a lot of people, a lot of my peers we get a lot, it's that thing of being like, we're emerging artists, we don't get a lot of opportunities mm. to show. If we do get an opportunity to show, it, we kind of think in our head who's, like, you know, like, you know, it's not, I'm not going to turn it down, like, you know, get get your money if you're getting paid or, you know, die from exposure, whatever. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's also this thing of knowing that that shouldn't be the standard mm. in yeah. the way in which we are being approached by curators. And, yeah. No, yeah. definitely. I think also when... I have um, contacted emerging artists to ask if they want to be in a show. I will pick a work that you know I've seen recently or whatever that I really like that fits the show that I'm doing. But then I always say, you know, I understand that your practice is developing, so you pro- mm. you've possibly moved on from this idea, and I'm totally open to talking with you about what you would like to yep. show. Like this is the kind of vibe that I was thinking, but I understand that you are growing and changing and making new work and maybe you want to show something else because you've got a platform to do it and I'm totally open to that. It's like going to your favourite like band and then yeah. expecting them to play that one song you really yes. like. Yeah. And like you get it, like you get it, I love it but you also want them to like grow as an artist. You know, we're talking about Princess Nokia and her yeah. <laughs> and you know, her emo phase and like you know, she has, she's, she's changing but she's also the same person but she's yeah. also getting to do what she loves and like we love Tomboy but we also love her emo phase and all that it brings. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really important if you're engaging us to just say from the outset, like, how does this engagement actually, like, suit you right now, where you are with your practice, where, like, you are with your current life situation? You can put as much energy or as little energy as you want into this, but as long as we're talking about it, like, that's fine. I think also I just wanted to add about public programming as well is Mm. breaking down um, those kind of institutional barriers. You know, when you have, like, an artist talk and often it's or a panel and everyone's sitting at the front on those chairs and it's like really fucking awkward when you walk in and also because yep. I'm like notoriously late to everything so I always <laughs> end up being late so I have to walk in like making noise and I drop my bag and it's just like it's never comfortable and I think it's also not very comfortable for the artists themselves and so mm. I was part of a group show and um, that's still on at St. Paul Street Gallery in Auckland. Go check it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just buy a ticket now because it's jet style some check deals. Um, <laughs> And the curators there, uh, Cameron and Charlotte, they we had a sort of a really casual artist talk, and it was really nice because when I we walked in, there were all these mats on the ground, and everybody sat in a circle, and we kind of riffed on this idea, which is a Pacific Island term called talanoa, which is yeah basically a conversation, and so it was so comfortable, and like the audience kind of chatted more rather than being just that spectator that doesn't provide an opinion or you know try and discuss Mm. they sort of just sit there staring at you it was actually really really nice and it's that kind of idea I think that we have to think about where we sort of break down these institutional ideas of what what a public public program program is is. yeah Yeah. like Seb you had a really great one at first draft we had a film screening as well as food made by your mum which is really beautiful so delicious (laughs) (laughs) super wholesome yeah Yeah. very wholesome and I think that's something that we really need to think about in terms Mm. of public programming just making everyone comfortable yeah Yeah. Mm. and desire lines 
Desire yeah, Land. Desire Land. Yeah, it's one of, big of, public program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a one giant public of program. Breaking down the, that kind of uh, traditional idea of what a public program is. It's also is. like an integrated public program because, yeah. like, mm. part of the art itself is walking through mm. that space. Definitely. And, you know, you're part of the art as much as you are witnessing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to talk more about public programming in our next segment, but. Um, <laughs> We've got another track picked by Talia. This is Girls Need Love by Summer Walker. I'm Nanette Orley. This is Canvas on FBI Radio uh, 94.5. Honestly. Girls Need Love is Summer Walker's breakout single from her album Last Day of Summer, released last year. You're listening to Candice on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Sabella D'Souza, and I'm with curator and guest host Nanette Orley and the other curators, <laughs> Talia Smith and Seb Henry Jones. You guys are now affectionately and lovingly called the other curators. <laughs> Uh, we're actually going to play another snippet from Zarina Muhammad's article, The Problem with Diaspora Art, from the White Pube. Here we go. For them to be reaching out to work with makers with marginalised identities so heavily slash exclusively within the realm of public programme means they can then go back to funders, private or public, with better diversity figures while spending fewer pounds to morally prove they are on side with trendy social justice movements. So at the moment, we definitely do have a serious problem with diversity in our institutions. Uh, It's an add-on mentality, it's a temporary exhibition, or it's a one-night event. Uh, Things are definitely changing, but slowly. Uh, This year, MoMA in New York will be shutting down to completely rehang its collection to be a more inclusive, diverse version of modern art. Although people are sceptical, this is still a huge step in the right direction. Um, Talia and Seb, what do you think Australian art institutions need to do today to start adhering to those mission statements and begin implementing change? How do we keep up with the KPI? (laughs) (laughs) God. Um, I wanted to just point out, and I thought about it this morning, um, was back at the last um, APT in uh, Brisbane. God, I could not think of what that was called. (laughs) What's APT? Uh, Asia Pacific Triennial. Thank you. Yes. Um, at the last one, so I haven't seen this one, but at the last one, Brooke Andrew um, did an intervention in, so not Quagoma, but the, I guess, the other one that's on the other side, Queensland Art Gallery or whatever it's called. Um, Quag. Which is like, yeah, Quag right next to it. Um, he did quite an interesting, I don't know if anyone saw it, but he it's called um, Intervening Time, and he went into the collection that was there and used it, put his like paintings on the walls that were behind it and then essentially rehung the collection. Oh yeah. Mm. So yep. he included like um works from the Indian collection, the Asian collection that they had amongst things like Goya and like all of those kind of masters of art and I thought that was really fucking great and also something that should have just stayed that way. Yeah. Like it was sad that it was just for the triennial and then it went back to how it always was. Um so I think that's kind of something like that was an amazing change that I think a lot of people really liked. And again, how we spoke about this um, being on the same platform, um, sorry, level playing field. It's like, keep it though. You know, like don't have it as just a a thing that was on for a couple of months while an art thing was on. You know, like an art was enough fear, but you know what I mean. Yeah. A big program was on. I Yeah, I think that's that was a really cool idea of 
genuine engagement, but then they lost it when they then changed it back. Well, it's allowing public programs to make lasting impact on the institution itself rather than just having public programs exist and mm. then disappear. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, but no, not definitely. even public programs, just exhibitions. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, we're still lacking so much so in permanent changes within our institutions, whether that is artists of colour within the permanent collections at the MCA or AGNSW. Like, we need to start seeing these things because I think you, we've kind of spoke about this as well. Like, it is super obvious to everybody else, the lack of representation. <laughs> yeah. So I don't understand why it's taking so long to make changes. Yeah, I think it's an internal problem. Like, I feel like... Um, institutions really have to have their internal inst- their internal structure up for review as yep. a way of recognizing their position as forethinkers in our social realm and think of the way that a you know a contemporary art institution is um connected to like larger mechanisms in our broader economic and social political realm um and with that in mind you know actually do whatever whatever they think is is right as opposed to whatever is seen to be right. Yeah, and obviously having people of colour in senior positions at institutions is clearly... Like, we obviously need that, and it's still not happening. Um, and I think, you know, there was an outrage, I remember, in um, America when uh, I think it was... I can't remember their name, but they got a position um, curating... I want to say African art at the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, the yeah. Brooklyn Museum, and there was an outrage about that because it was a, another white person doing that. And it's it's things like that. It's it's not that um, you don't have the theoretical uh, study behind you and stuff to be able to do that. But it's like there's something really important about lived experience, and yes. I think that's what we all bring as people of mm. color curators to an institution. And I don't think institutions realize how fucking key that is. And and the issue, or like, what I'm thinking about when we've been talking about this is, you know, when we're referring to inst- institutions, we're talking about, you know, government-funded or um, recognised um, spaces like galleries mm. and museums. Um, but this issue also lies in, you know, educational systems. Yeah, it's it is like an offshoot of this, you know, system of power and system of control by putting people with not lived experiences in positions that get to control how that knowledge is disseminated mm. that like that is building upon it so this isn't happening in a vacuum mm. it's not just yeah. that these people hold these positions it's that government in many ways is allowing it to mm. to stay this way and not making it a priority to change it yeah, yeah. And government especially having those open-ended employment contracts not allowing for change to happen mm. like there should be probably be a caveat on how long a director can be a director yeah like say five years like do your change move on let someone else come up and have a go it's Mm -hmm. just unless these things start to change from the top down including boards like I honestly like we're all doing the work here we're all Mm. and it's it's fostering that mentorship that we've spoken about it's it's by putting on you know you know by having that caveat or by having that you know 
clause or however long that someone can hold a position for, it also forces you to rework the way in which you give knowledge to the next people mm. so that mm. a, a, a handover isn't just like a chaotic mess. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. a chaotic mess, but instead it is something that you've worked towards and that you know that if you are in this position, you know that you will eventually go further or, you know, mm. or, or do something else and like be able to make more meaningful impact. Yeah. I recently um, saw Annika Jaspers, who's one of the curators um, at Art Gallery of New South Wales. She's currently doing her PhD at UNSW, so we had our review things recently. Um, and so I got to sort of see her speak on what she was doing. And she is looking at kind of this idea of Indigenous um, uh, collections and care within a institution, a white institution. And she is a white woman herself. But what I really liked about what she said was that this PhD is to help her work alongside her mm. colleagues that are people of colour. And I really liked that. And it's like, you can do that as a white mm. curator. You know, we're not saying don't be, we don't want any white curators anyway. No. <laughs> That's not what we're saying. It's just, be aware of that. And I really liked her and her senior position that she has at Art Gallery of New South Wales saying that and making yeah. that clear yeah. that that's what the point of her PhD is about is to also kind of present to other white curators that we can actually do this and we can make a museum and a gallery um, inclusive genuinely you know yes. I, I thought that was really cool yeah should we go to our next song or yeah our last track for uh, today? second last track our second last track <laughs> <laughs> which was picked by Seb this is Flashdance from Deep Fish you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 I'm Nanette Hawley Flashdance is from an American electric music duo, Deep Dish, from album George's On. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Sabella D'Souza. So before we wrap up today, uh, Talia and Seb, do you have any last points? Uh, I guess we were just saying off air that diversity itself is a white institution with in which like the excellence, the standards of excellence are white standards. Um, it's really comfortable that way and mm-hmm. so we keep we have to keep on interrogating it yeah it's yep. about striving not for diversity but active and ongoing yeah. meaningful mm-hmm. inclusion which is you know those ideas of cur- curatorial care mm. that were brought up earlier in the episode mm. talia uh <laughs> i had uh nothing prepared for this little uh, moment um, <laughs> anyway i guess also i think we just we need more opportunities for artists for sure that's not something that's new but i think um let's share the love a little like uh, with emerging poc artists let's share the love Mm. Uh, we have there are amazing artists that are established that have paved the way for many other poc curators and artists and i will always respect and acknowledge and love that love them for that and appreciate that but i think also because funding is so tight and opportunities are so small and you know few and far between that i think let's kind of try and share the love and and try and mentor and help other POC, like lift them up when we get the opportunity and chance to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to say thank you to both of you for coming in today and sharing your thoughts on these discussions. Um, I think curators of colour are definitely playing an important role in initiating changes around curatorial care. There's definitely more flexibility and authenticity to create shows that address lack of representation, shifting identities or reimagine histories. 
and um, as curators with migratory backgrounds like ourselves. Uh, and quite frankly, this is because we are the embodiment of culturally and linguistically diverse mm-hmm. life. Clad. Clad. Clad or cow? C-A-L-D. I like to say clad because I like to imagine that we're all clad in... In, ar- in armour. Yeah. Um, Whoa. <laughs> but our own existence ultimately means we understand the community's need to be seen and heard as strong individuals who deserve more than just add-on fucking opportunities than any other curator or institutional director. I've been taking a back seat. Well, not really. I say that I take a back seat, but I've definitely been up and in it. Um, I want to thank both Talia and Seb for taking the time to come onto the show today and share their thoughts. I also want to give a huge, huge thanks to Nanette Orley, our first guest presenter for 2019. It's such a rare and like wonderful opportunity for Canvas to be able to facilitate these sorts of discussions so in depth and you know give space it's not enough space but it's the beginning of space and I think that you know it's gestures um, and we really appreciate all the work that you've done today to create this autonomous show um, Canvas is brought to you by a team of artists today it was curator Nanette Orley Sebastian Henry Jones and Talia Smith Canvas's executive producer is me Sabella D'Souza <laughs> our music producer is Laura Hunt we'll be back to our regular scheduling scheduling broadcasting with Makita picking the tracks next week Taking you into weekend lunch with Martin Reyes. This next track was picked by Nanette. Taken from the 2016 album Begin. This is Lion Babe with Treat Me Like Fire. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.